Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, In the year 10,191, the spice must flow. I, people should know what we're talking about. And Luke, um, something you probably don't know, because we this is today's Dune, 1984's Dune. We watched different versions of it. We watched very different versions. You, you watched the proper David Lynch version, which is actually shorter. I watched the longer one, and your opening voice is the narrator voice. Yeah. yeah that voice is annoying when I do it for 10 seconds at the start of an episode. So, so just to let you know, Luke does that voice every week. But, uh, Anyway, uh, this is Matt. This is Luke. And welcome to our Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Again, it is Dune. Uh, we have a, a man with us today who, um, I, I've been thinking about how to do this intro, so I'm going to go back in time. Uh, most recently, he's uh, written a book with the uh, 80, or at least 82 of possibly more species of aliens. Um, before that, he made a movie, Stranger the Pentagon, looking at the Valiant Thor situation, which is a uh, Luke actually knew about when I mentioned it to you. I know the name, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you read up on that a little. Um, before that, he's done some real Hollywood work and continues to do that uh, today. Uh, Emmy-nominated casting director on Picket Fences. And most pertinent today, he worked four years on the uh, production staff of uh, the 1984 Dune. So hello, Greg Campobasso. Hey, how are you guys? Well, thank you very much for <laughs> joining us today. You bet. Um, I... I know you are going to have by far the largest story on this. So I'll, I guess I'll go with how this movie first came to me. Um, I think I first saw it on HBO at my aunt's house, maybe 1986 or probably 87. So I would have been seven or eight years old. And I hadn't, I didn't know there was a book. So I didn't understand it. I was seven years old and I, and yeah, um, I was probably holding a Captain Picard doll in my hand, so I was like extra confused <laughs> with Patrick Stewart there. <laughs> and I just, you know, of course, with the movie coming out, I've had the books on my iPad for several years now. So I finally got around to reading the book, giving the movie another view. And um, before we get too deep, I just want to go, there's three, a few images that have stuck with me my entire life. This is a David Lynch movie, gets into your subconscious. Yes. The box, the box has stuck with me since I was seven years old. Um, the floating Harkonnen has stuck with me since I was um, that age. And um, Patrick Stewart with long hair. <laughs> so maybe this was my Santa Claus moment. No, Matt, there's, there's not a real Captain Picard. He's just an actor. <laughs> yeah, he's really Gurney. Yeah. <laughs> Gurney Halleck. Luke, you have a lot more um, Dune experience, but not necessarily with this movie. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I guess eight, nine years old, Dune was the first book that I got super into. 
I was, when I first read Dune, I was, at lunch breaks, I would sit in the corner of the playground and read Dune instead of play with my friends. Uh, I loved that book. It was the first book that really got me at the exact right age where I'm up for a big science fiction world, for have, loving these characters, for loving Paul Atreides and getting super into all the lore and stuff. Um, and it's remained one of my favorite books. I read it every few years. Um, I actually haven't read many of the sequels. I just really like that first book, that hero's journey that Paul goes on, the sort of the sort of Middle East illusions. You know, I guess you could see it's a little bit white savior, but at the time, I mean, 1965, it was actually pretty progressive. Um, and the sequels are going to dash your dreams a little bit. Yeah, I know. That's why I've never bothered to read them. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember hearing at the time, like, oh, there's a film. I want to see the film. And my parents being like, oh, no, you don't want to watch the film. The film's awful. So actually, despite loving Dune, having read the book, played the video games, um, watched the miniseries a few years ago, I watched this film for the first time last night. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And which, which version? The David no, I version? I watched the one that's on Netflix, the two hour, 16 minute David Lynch version. Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> on my end. I was like, hey, I'm going to see more. That's good, right? <laughs> so yeah, um, I guess you gave a brief first impression. Because I'm someone who had read the book, I love this film as an accompaniment to the book. I think it has incredible visuals. I think the music's nice. It captures a lot of the characters. I don't think the film on its own gives the story. Maybe Dune is just not something that can be done in two hours. Right, especially in the 70s and 80s, this was one of the unfilmable books. Uh, I'm, Craig might have a lot more on this, but I know there's the 70s um, Alando Jordowski version, which, you know, there's a whole documentary about that one. And you're like, mm -hmm. I want to see that Dune. But if he had made that, then I think we might be like, I wish I could see the David Lynch Dune. So it's, yeah. you know, it's a double-edged sword there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the entire shooting schedule in Mexico City was about six months. So there really was, uh, I think, about five and a half to six hours of actual film. And then they had to condense it. And so what happened was, is we lost the whole giant chunk of the whole Fremen warriors. Mm. So we lost, there were, there were actors that were down there that, that were uh, there for like three plus months filming and they were reduced to either one line or just standing in the background uh, because they had to put out that, uh, a certain amount uh, per universal, right? So, so anyway, I, I remembered seeing um, when uh, we were at Universal first for about a year. It was just me, David, a couple secretaries, and the producer, Rafaela De Laurentiis, who's the producing daughter of Dino De Laurentiis, who is the main executive producer. So we were at Universal, and it was sort of all of the prep, and David was writing the script, and we were... Uh, sort of working on a lot of different things. And then the production started coming in and Tony Masters came, start, uh, started and he started drawing all the sets. And it was very fun for me being young and right out of high school to observe all of these types of things that were going on, especially uh, Anthony Masters who had done so much, uh, so much before. 
And uh, I think he did, um, was it 2001, I believe. Um, you'll have to look that up. You'll have to Google <laughs> that, but, I, but I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, anyway, so as everything's gearing up, uh, we're gonna shoot at a Studios Cherubusco in Mexico City, but at the same time, uh, Dino and Rafaela were also producing Conan the Destroyer with Arnold Schwarzenegger, both movies for Universal. So I was working on both movies at the same time. And in Mexico City, both movies were shooting in tandem, right? So it was really, it, it was really crazy, fun, hectic, uh, all of those things. No, nope. based in Mexico City, because I'm thinking I also saw in your credits Total Recall, which I believe is another Mexico City one. It is another Mexico City. So I pretty much was at Universal and then I would fly down. And uh, if I had to bring something uh, to the set or sometimes what we had to do is it, when we would have to buy a lot of things that all of the departments needed, we had to buy several of the same thing and send them down in different shipments because they would just go missing when they hit Mexico City. <laughs> so we had to do this type of thing all the time. And um, uh, so I would go down and, uh, and then hang out for a little bit and then I go back to Universal and then I go back down. And so during this long process and then they came back and then there was a changing of the guards. Uh, Sidney Scheinberg, um, who was president, had left and Frank Price took over. And um, I sort of remember there was some scuttle of them trying to see the film before it was done. So we actually moved off the lot and went into a private building. We went into the building that was actually doing the visual effects. So uh, the whole second floor of this building was empty. So we overtook it. So the post-production for Dune and Conan the Destroyer, we were all on the same floor uh, along with Raffaella and some of the other uh, pertinent people. So, so we were there for a very long period of time, but I do remember Dino being in the cutting room with David and and Dino has an eye for everything. And I just remember hearing his voice going as they're watching it on the movie, Ola, cut, the cut, the cut, the cut, the stop, cut, the cut. And I could just, and I, I could, my office was right across so I could look in and see, and I could just see David's face melting, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was kind of curious. So, what the relationship was there because um I, I feel like watching this movie there's moments where you very much see the dylan oh guy i can't even say the name sorry i saw you can't pronounce things say it from Dino Laurentiis. yes i know how to spell it but i can't say it anyway his visions very or their visions very clear on the screen sometimes there's shots that really look like flash gordon which i, I like that and there was a scene right. especially on the acting side where i'm like hey, this feels like a David Lynch movie. Wait, this is a David Lynch movie. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you have to remember as well, this, this was a huge undertaking. There were many people who owned the rights to Dune. Even once I had a meeting with Roger Corman 
because uh, I had just cast a film for his wife, Julie. And Julie said, oh my God, I would love for you to come to our company and cast all our films. I'm gonna set you up with Roger. So I went in and I sat with Roger and he just looked at me and, and he goes, you got 10 minutes, just like that. Tell me, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I started my career on Dune and then he looked at me and he goes, okay, you got 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so he had told me he had owned the rights to Dune at a certain point, it was just uh, literally impossible to make. Mm -hmm. So, um, so with, with this, and, and going through, in the beginning, they, they had the very big uh, visual effects uh, guy, John Dykstra, you know, did all the big movies, who was just known, uh, Star Wars, all of those movies. And um, the, a rift happened between him and Raffaella somewhere along the line, and he vanished. Uh, he, he owned Apogee at the time. And I remember going down to Apogee a lot and seeing the stuff that they were working on and building and actually seeing some of the Star Wars stuff, uh, as well. You know, they had the models and the things there and the, nice. you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, so then they went to Vandeveer photo effects and there was, it was very, very difficult for them to figure out how to do the blue within blue eyes, you couldn't do CGI ships at that time. You couldn't do CGI anything, literally. I mean, that didn't come until Jurassic Park, right? When you could CGI creatures and animals and, and uh, that kind of thing. A lot of other things were models, right? Like, like all the star, beginning Star Wars movies were all models. So long story short, they, uh, you know, sometimes in Dune, you're, you're going to see like the little ornithopter fly by and it really is a piece of wood sprayed gold. Yeah. And that's like towards the end of the movie, some of Ron Miller's matte paintings, because they didn't have inserts. They just photographed that and they just moved the camera. And that's sort of what you saw. Um, and so there were things that they couldn't do. It was extremely expensive. That's why they shot down in Mexico City, um, which also proved problems because, you know, they would lose electricity. They would, uh, because there was so much power going out with both movies shooting down there. So. <laughs> future, the most valuable substance in the Empire is the drug melange, or spice, which extends life, expands consciousness, and allows the Spacing Guild to fold space. The Guild and the Emperor scheme to destroy House Atreides. The execution order draws the attention of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, since Paul Atreides is tied to their centuries-long breeding program to produce the Kwisatz Haderach, the universe's super-being. 
Before Paul leaves for Arrakis, he is tested by the Reverend Mother Mohyam with the Gomjabar. To Mohyam's surprise and eventual satisfaction, he passes the test. The Atreides leave their homeworld Caladan for Arrakis, a barren desert planet populated by gigantic sandworms. The Rampatan. The native people of Arrakis, the Fremen, prophesize that a messiah, the Muad'Dib, will lead them to freedom. Duncan Idaho, one of Leto's loyalists, tells him that he suspects Dune holds vast numbers of Fremen who could prove to be powerful allies. Before Leto can form an alliance with the Fremen, the Harkonnens launch their attack. Paul and Jessica survive the attack and escape into the deep desert, where they are given sanctuary by some Fremen. Paul assumes the Fremen name Wadib and emerges as the leader for whom the Fremen have been waiting. He teaches them to build and use weirding modules, sonic weapons developed by House Atreides, and targets spice mining. Over the next two years, spice production is nearly halted. The Spacing Guild informs the Emperor of the deteriorating situation on Arrakis and demands he rectify it. The Emperor amasses a huge invasion fleet above Arrakis to wipe out the Fremen and regain control of the planet. Riding atop sandworms and brandishing sonic weapons, Paul's Fremen warriors easily defeat the Emperor's legions. Paul demonstrates his newfound powers and fulfills the Fremen prophecy by causing rain to fall on Arrakis. His sister Alia declares him to be the Kwisatz Haderach. Fun fact, one of those nonsense sci-fi words I made up. Can you tell which one? Shamanic prayer flags of light in the solar winds, ablaze and liberated in millennium blue-rimmed skies, in so many myriad ways, yet no more to roam over the days. One thing that I will say that was um, really cool is the cast was great. I mean, it was a killer cast. And when um, Jane Jenkins was the casting director, she had an associate named Elizabeth Lustig. And Elizabeth traveled around the United States looking in theaters and things of that nature. She found Kyle up in Washington. And so when Kyle flew down, uh, I went and picked him up at the airport. I brought him to um, uh, the Sheraton Universal so he could change and uh, just gave him a little bit of what to expect and that kind of thing in his first meeting with David. And uh, that went well, he was a super nice guy. And, uh, and then we went on to doing um, the screen test. So that, there were two days of screen tests. Helen Shaver, uh, who was also up for the part of Lady Jessica, read with all of the polls. And we had testing Kevin Costner, who wasn't famous yet, um, Lewis Smith, uh, Michael Bean, who was famous at that time, doing all these other films, Abyss and you know Terminator and all of that. Um, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer was the contender 
until the screen test day when um, Kyle got up there. Now, mind you, I'm just in, I'm just out of high school. I'm sitting in a chair next to Rafaela and uh, Jane Jenkins and just watching this. And as I watched all the actors, the minute Kyle came up and he embodied uh, Paul Maud Dib, I literally just got chills. And I was like, this is the guy. And Rafaela, I just remember her leaning over to me and she goes, should we change his name? And I said, no, he's got a great name. Just leave his name alone. So they ended up signing Kyle to an eight-picture deal, which, uh, you know, after Dune, there was Blue Velvet and a few other David films as well for Dino. And um, it was interesting to see everyone's interpretation. That's why I've been casting now well over 30 years. Rafaela put me on her next film because she asked me after we finished these productions what area that I liked and she would put me in that department and I said I really like casting and she said well I'll, I'll put you on with Joanna Ray who's casting my next film Taipan and so I was a jo- Joanna's assistant and we went to San Francisco to start the hunt for the actors and so Joanna was my casting mentor, and um, uh, and so after uh, Kyle was hired, and everything started to go, and then all of the all of the rest of the actors started coming on board, and they started shooting. Um, I, I think when uh, I saw Sean Phillips as the Reverend Mother Romalo, I was literally blown away. I mean, that scene with the box was one of the most standout scenes. I could literally recite almost every line in the movie because the editing suite was across from my office. So I heard the lines every day, all day long in a loop. Back. And then back on that scene. That scene yeah. my nightmares. There's, a, there's several David Lynch scenes that have been my nightmares. And um, I guess yeah. reading the book, and, and we're in the cast, I'll edit your summary in later. Because <laughs> I forgot to write one. Okay. <laughs> okay. But um, Kyle McLaughlin, I, I read the book. I mostly got to go with my own head canon. Um, right. And, and he's not age appropriate. Paul's supposed to be 15, right? But I couldn't get him out of my head reading the book. It's like he was right. He was right. Paul when I was reading the book. Um, the other thing is, since it had been so long since I had seen the movie, um, half of the Atreides, um, like people around the Atreides were Patrick Stewart when I read the book. Because <laughs> I couldn't remember which one he was. <laughs> See, when I read the book, then, Paul Atreides was always Mark Hamill. Okay, and then half of the half of the Harkonnens <laughs> was Sting, because I couldn't remember which one was Sting. <laughs> yeah, Sting, that was Sting. So and My, my headcanon yeah. had a whole lot of Sting and Patrick Stewart when I was reading the book. <laughs> Well, also what you, what you have to remember is uh, Tom Cruise came in and met on the movie, but he, I remember uh, him coming into the office. He was so young and he looked very young. You know, he, they, they had done Outsiders and uh, that kind of stuff for Coppola. Um, 
So they they had felt that he was too young, but also Chani, um, I think what they wanted is they wanted that romantic thing and you can't have a romantic thing with a 15 year old mm. in a movie. So I, I think, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I agree with the filmmakers for doing that. I, uh, in the new Dune, them picking uh, T- Timothy Charlemagne is perfect because he still looks young enough but mature enough, mm-hmm. right? And he's a powerhouse of an actor. Now, I'm so excited to see that movie because they could do everything we couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the interesting I mean, thing about this. Yeah. And there's so many things where it's like, it's kind of this weird, surreal shorthand. Um, yeah. You know, I, I love experimental films. So for me, that's like pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like weird analog clunky effects. I, I've said on this podcast before, one of my favorite effects is the uh, destruct the volcano exploding in London, the time machine, which technically is a horrible effect, but they were doing something they just could really couldn't do and making a you know, right. fantastic effort at it. Yeah, yeah, but I I too have that love of movies where where you see those visual, like like the uh, Seven Voyages of Sinbad and all of those uh, uh, visual effects that were really great for the time. But I love to go back because it brings back my happy memories as a boy watching them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had just right? done, um, on this podcast, we just did Legend. And I, I think Dune's a much better film than Legend. I, yeah, <laughs> but the, uh, the effects aesthetic kind of felt the same like how right right about it so you know yeah major director of that time a uh, pretty big budget so yeah yeah i mean there's so there were there were so many fun things that happened also during dune and um uh, i remember one story bob ringwood uh who did the costumes for excalibur which is still i think when i read online uh most people's favorite wedding dress uh, that came out of that movie that everyone really uh, loved and adored. Um, he's British. And when we, when we had the Royal premiere, um, I flew to London and I stayed with Bob and uh, uh, most of the cast uh, was there. Uh, Prince Andrew. Uh, this is now in 1984 in December Prince Andrew sat right in front of us. Grace Jones came um, because she lived there. And uh, so we had the premiere there. And then we um, uh, went to Blondie's afterwards. And that's where the after party is. And uh, so it was sort of like the last goodbye to a lot of our British actors that we just loved and adored, especially Sean uh, Phillips. I mean... She was just amazing. She was married to Peter O'Toole. And uh, and then I started watching some of her other stuff after that, like an I, Claudius, and um, uh, that wonderful movie that Scorsese made with Michelle Pfeiffer. The, um, it was all about etiquette and the dinner table. I Like the innocent or... Yeah, yeah. I want to say the innocence, but it's not that. It's it's like a one word type of thing. I like it as merchant ivory films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of it kind of felt it had that feel. 
um, where everyone was described, everything was described down to the spoons, and, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of thing. So, um, but there, uh, there was like some really cool stuff like, uh, uh, Bob decided because uh, the Baron Harkonnen is gay, they couldn't really show that he was gay. And so Bob came up with an idea for David. They got blonde Guadalajaran boys out of Mexico. And Bob created these um, plastic suits where they would be nude beneath the suit and then he would fill it with spice. So when they'd walk, you'd see body parts touch against uh, the thing. And then this would sort of be the Baron's harem without saying it was the Baron's harem, but it was just a little too racy for the times. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember they were all in there, all the, all the Guadalajara boys were in there in these outfits waiting for David uh, to see him and Sting was walking down the hallway and he went oh my god what do you got there bob and he said oh yeah he said you didn't get these in your contract <laughs> it's an unexpected uh, yeah i gotta say i i didn't get a chance to meet sting but i corresponded with uh him and his wife and um i may have met him when we were down in mexico i mean it's it's just all those times were such a blur because everything was so fast. But um, he uh, he was so kind when when the police did a concert, he gave us all tickets and, you know, things of that nature. I, I sent him a bunch of uh, press and posters and all kinds of things. And I I sent him a, his photo in the famous wings right <laughs> and i asked him to autograph it for me because that was the iconic photo and he mailed it back and he didn't sign it <laughs> and i thought well that's weird why didn't he sign it years later I look and right around his nipple, he wrote sting <laughs> really little. Oh, that's, that's, that's signature. Isn't that great? That's yeah, amazing. it was really cool. It was really cool. So but visually sting in this film is one of the most iconic images. Yes. But I was yeah. really surprised watching it. His role isn't not that major in the actual film. You sort of you see no. him lurking in the background and then he finally has his fight at the end. At the end. But the other yeah. two Harkonnens have a lot more actual uh, screen time and they do the they do yeah it's going to be interesting how they play they play everything and they i mean they actually got an incredible cast for the new doom i mean it's it really is great i mean it uh, i i'm just so excited to see it I, I don't think it's coming out till later this year I so think it's an autumn release yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. yeah. They we, pushed it. They pushed it. Yeah, we live in Japan, so we never know when films are going to show up. We're yeah, it could be a 2022 oh, film. For right, right, right. <laughs> so we still have. That's right. It's uh, it's currently what April 10th, 9th, and for us it's April 9th. And um, you know, we we can't do yeah. our Godzilla versus King Kong for like another month. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's out here, but not there yet. Yeah, it's not yeah. like Japan likes Godzilla or anything. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, yeah. Luke, exactly. Your favorite actor. My favorite actor of all time is Patrick Stewart. So and, and who do you oh, call so Japanese people? 
And when I speak to Japanese people, I tell them my favorite actor is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So because they don't know Patrick Stewart. <laughs> they don't know Patrick, sir. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, first, uh, Those are my top two right there. <laughs> oh man. I have so many favorites, but a lot of my favorites are the ones that are up and coming that I just know are gonna hit and and uh that you give a uh, you help get them there and that kind of thing and uh work. you're excited about your new project right <laughs> yeah it does it, it does you know it's very exciting and it's exciting to see um dune continue actually and uh when it was on sci-fi it was their most watched ever and i think they got through what Three books? Yeah, they did three first. books, but they did it in two series, I think. Yeah. And two, yeah. And yeah. So hopefully this movie will do well so that they can continue. And then, of course, um, Frank's son Brian and his writing partner have continued the Dune series on and on and on and on. So, uh, which, which is really, really great. I mean, it was very sad because uh, Mrs. Herbert passed away. And then not long after, Frank left. So um, it wasn't after much long after uh, Frank uh, signed the book cover that I showed you guys earlier. See if I can get it. Yep, yep, get it in there for the recording. No, we were definitely (laughs) impressed to see the uh, to see that one. (laughs) Yeah, trying to get the ring light out of there. So, um, but yeah, it wasn't long after this. I can't remember when he passed, but I remember it wasn't. It was probably within a year or something like that. But at least he was there the first day on the set. At least he got to see his dream realized. And uh, to just see it continue, I think is you know pretty spectacular. So I want to get a little, we, we talked to design a little bit, but I want to get a little deeper. And Luke, it's been your first viewing, which uh, image disturb you the most well, odd or disturbed <laughs> yeah i'm gonna start for disturbing images Disturb- David for me, it's, the, um, <laughs> it's the scene where we see the navigator actually at work yeah right he's like shooting yeah. out like here's this planet here's this planet the problem right. i couldn't figure out what orifice those beams were coming from <laughs> okay <laughs> i was like oh is one coming from one end and one the other because that was a real yeah. close-up on a puckering little orifice yeah <laughs> yeah well, you, it, it's it's pure David Lynch shock value. That's yeah. why that's why we love it. I I, I mean, I uh, the little crazy thing in uh, Eraserhead and uh, all of that. It's 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 just in there. I mean, he he wanted me to see Eraserhead for the longest time, and it was only playing at the New Art Theater here, and that was at midnight, and I never had a chance to go see it, and then finally. After like a few years, I went to see it on a Friday or Saturday night. And then uh, uh, maybe the following weekend, I was at David's house and I told him I saw it. And then his wife sort of pulled me aside and she said, what did you really think? And I said, you know, I said, and mind you, my little filmmaking brain hasn't even formulated or anything at, at that point. Um, I was quite naive about the whole film business, but but I look back on it now and just saying, wow, to be around all these mentors, because I really did pay attention and watch. But I said, 
I said, I feel like he dreams like weird stuff and he puts it in movies. <laughs> and she goes, you know, I think that too. So, um, because we've just come to know it in a lot of David's things. I mean, the, the, the one movie that was pretty straightforward was the straight story, <laughs> but it still had that little strange vibe to it, which, uh, which I loved, which I absolutely loved. So even though the critics uh, papooed Dune and a lot of that had to do with the changing of the guard at Universal because they wouldn't show him the film, he was not a fan of Dino's, I heard. And so, um, so there wasn't the support for the movie release and uh, there was a whole contention that no one was going to understand it. So they had to come up with a way in the beginning of the film to explain it. And that's where we see Princess Erlen, uh was an afterthought to put that in there to um, bring people into what is spice, what is, what is this, what is that, and that type of thing. So, um, but, you know, we had... A lot of iconic uh, people in there as well. Silvana Mangano, one of the most famous Italian actresses, played uh, the old Reverend Mother, who is actually was Dino's wife and Raffaella's mother. And so she was as famous as Sophia Loren in Italy. So, yeah, like my dad was crazy when I told him I got to meet Silvana Mangano many times. So, was she in Flash Gordon also had a major Italian actress. That yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't, okay. it wasn't, yeah, okay. it wasn't, I guess I just don't think they do. So, yeah, that was or Ornella Muti. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I yeah, but production trope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of times they would shoot overseas, so. You, you get local wonderful actors as well that can that can do the part so one thing about design is um usually you read a book and you get kind of like more wild and hardcore visions in your head whereas with this one i feel like some of them they're a little more wild and hardcore with the movie uh for example the voice when i read the book i kind of i, I thought it would be like kind of an npr thing where i just talk to you with interesting inflections and it takes on some thing mm. and then they talk about how creepy Ali is I'm like well it's kind of creepy it's a little girl that talks like a grown sage right right <laughs> but I was like, right, right wow that the voice and her are creepy in this <laughs> yeah yeah it's going to be interesting what they do with that in the new movie as well so because I love I love the voice when Jessica did the voice and when Alia did the voice and you know, little Alia is Alicia Witt, who went on uh, to star in the TV series Sybil with uh, Sybil Shepherd, uh, And she's been in lots of lots of movies. And I remember her well because her mother had the longest hair in the world. <laughs> it, went, it like literally went, would scrape on the floor. Wow. Okay. So, Impressive. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
but no, so my my big love is monster movies. Um, so what I was really excited to see was the worms. And I yes. think more than any, I think those effects hold up really well. Yeah. I really felt when I was watching it, like the worms are big. Yes. I, it never felt like here's a small model eating a miniature. They, the way they're shot, the way they move, the way the sand moves around them. And yes. like, there's also the shots where they're climbing the worm, or I guess there's just huge actual models. It really felt like the Titans that they should have felt like. Right, That's right. That's the iconic image for me of Dune, and I think the film actually nailed those. <laughs> Definitely nailed those. Yeah, I, I've done now three worm movies. I did uh, Dune, Tremors 3, and then I have a film uh, that just finished shooting earlier this year called It Crawls Beneath with really creepy worms. So okay. uh, I'm like, okay, I think uh, I've done three worm movies now. You're the worm guy now. <laughs> the <laughs> no. worm guy. <laughs> but those are smaller worms, yes. Uh, they're the, they're different sizes. Okay, yeah. I was just they're, they're, they're different sizes. Luke yeah. is cool with large spider monsters, but not small spiders. I was going to ask you how you are with worms. Oh, I, worms don't bother me. Okay. It's literally just spiders. I'm fine with all other bugs. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but now, like any time, like so many other sci-fi and fantasies have basically ripped off the worms. Even Star Wars, right, has the Sarlacc. Yeah, I was saying here, like I. I in general, I'm glad David Lynch did this and not Return of the Jedi, mm. uh, in, in great part, because I, I think that he got, you can tell me if I'm wrong with this, but I believe doing this enabled him to do Blue Velvet, which, um, yes, I love Blue Velvet. So, um, yeah, but I was like, man, David Lynch is Sarlacc. I mean, I guess it's the effects guy, not David Lynch, but uh, right. <laughs> still, I was like, man, that, that cool, way cooler than Sarlacc. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, David wanted to do his own project. He wrote Blue Velvet. And and I sort of worked on it a tiny bit with David. I would go shopping with him, you know, picking out uh, different stuff for the movie, and then it would go into storage uh, until the movie was shot. And then the movie got postponed for quite some time. Um, but then when it got back up, and he got to go and shoot that. And so he primarily really likes focusing on his, the, his own things that he writes. That's very awesome. And, uh, yeah. I, I got to ask one fanboy question because uh, for Blue Velvet, um, where, did you happen to be on set for any of the totally insane Frank Booth moments? No, no, <laughs> I, was, I was never on the set there because they were shooting in North Carolina. Uh, uh, Dino De Laurentiis had a studio down there at the time. Um, but I will tell you, I did see, because the original idea was that Frank would suck up helium <laughs> and then speak <laughs> with a high voice like that and say, you know, like yeah, yeah. The, the F word mommy <laughs> and that kind of thing. And it was so laughable that, that, yeah, I mean, it was so laughable that they had to go back in and they really had to just retool that. So I want to see that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say, I, I, when I first saw it, I saw it in a screening room uh, with David and a few other people. And I, um, I was really disturbed by that movie. My, <laughs> it was the first time a movie actually disturbed me. 
And I, I, it, it lasted for days and I refused to see the movie again, ever again. <laughs> and, and then of course I sort of relented about four months ago and I said, okay, I'm gonna watch it. And then I watched it and I was just like, God, it's just so good. I mean, just like the beginning visuals of this happy little town and a man watering his lawn and the sun is out and everything's happy. And then the camera just creeps down and goes beneath the grass and you start to see these little creepy, <laughs> creepy crawler beetles running around and you, it sets the whole subtext of the whole movie up in this happy little town. There are really dark, creepy people, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and I know De uh, Kyle didn't want to do that movie because it was so disturbing. And I think, uh, I mean, at a certain point, they talked him into it. I'm so. glad he did it. <laughs> That's one of my favorite. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. It's great. And you have to remember, we were all a lot younger then, and and Kyle was younger, and and there are certain things that you know you're like oh god could i do this <laughs> i mean as a, as an actor i know a lot of actors say i don't know if i can do this i really don't know if i can do this so um because there was you know such uh those really intense scenes between him and isabella rossellini so we're talking about this now and we recently did an episode we talked about showgirls and the impression i'm getting is that Kyle's like just this really nice, lovable guy. And it's this long running practical joke of like, what are the most horrible situations we can put him into? <laughs> I know, I know. And, and not only is he a great guy, he's hysterically funny. He is so funny. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I saw him last year and he just said, God, I remember when you came and picked me up at the airport and how it all began for me from that point on. And I said, yeah, I, I said, it's just been an amazing journey. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure along the way, he sort of found out about all of the backstories and the other people that were up for the part. I mean, he, he definitely saw Val Kilmer that day because Val screen tested on that day and a, a few other guys. And then the other guys screen tested uh, the day after, but um, they were full blown screen tests with the, with the big camera and the whole thing. So, um, so it was kind of interesting, but yeah, there was a, there was a lot of stuff. Uh, Rafaela took me and uh, Val Kilmer before Kyle came into the picture, she just said, we were gonna, uh, I'm gonna take you to a place. Um, and we're like, well, where are you taking us? And she, oh, you'll see. And we go up in the mountains somewhere and it's like, I don't know if it's like Topanga Canyon or something like that. We go to this guy, he looks like a little nutty professor. He's got this giant laboratory that's dilapidated and he makes me and Val and Rafaela lay on this table and then he just comes over and he props our eyes open and he pours goo into it without even saying a <laughs> word like like what he was going to do right and it was so disturbing but what he was doing was measuring our eyes because he was going to make the blue lenses and then we would wear the blue lenses but in the end they had to forget that idea because 
you couldn't keep a whole lens in your eye because the eye couldn't breathe. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they sort of had to just go in and sort of put them in, um, in visual effects, which they were having a very hard time trying to figure out, but, but they did, they did. And, uh, you know, they weren't perfect, but when it's it still so cool. cool. But I was yeah. even having read the book and knowing it's a permanent thing. I'm saying there, is it when they're closer to the spice, the, their eyes are blue when they're farther away, they go to normal or <laughs> right, I mean, right. it, it did kill the movie, but yeah, that is a difficult non-digital effect to do. Um, yeah. How about the, um, the, the shields that has a very digital early digital look. The, uh, it did. And I thought it was great. I thought it looked really, really cool. And in the previews I saw of the new Dune, they have their own version of it, which was super cool as well. I was really surprised when I saw it because reading the book, I'd always imagine the shields are something you can't actually see. Right. So right. I thought there would be a slight fuzz when they turn it on and then you just wouldn't see it. So I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd never heard of or seen this effect before. And I was really caught off guard. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, this is definitely different. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was different. It was something I've never, ever saw in a movie uh, before or since. Or, or since. <laughs> I thought it was great. And I loved all of the little fighting tools and all the things, the sets that uh, Anthony Masters built. Um, before we can't get out of doing without getting into philosophical stuff. I'm going to start it on, I guess, the lighter side and uh, maybe give you an in. Do none of these are aliens. They're all humans that have well, I mean, grown I think in the different ways. Are aliens. Okay. But, oh, oh, the well, yeah, the worms themselves. But that, they're like an animal. I mean, like yeah. The yeah, yeah, the, um, the beings, the navigators and stuff are were humans once upon a time. Okay. So, um, <laughs> I was right there. <laughs> I was curious at the Star Trek idea of uh, everything coming from one idea is something that you kind of jive with. Well, there that that idea is that they are definitely we would consider the characters in Dune extraterrestrials, even though they're human because they live on another world. Mm. They live on other worlds, right? Right. So, so, but us to them we would be extraterrestrials to them if you want to look at it in in that from that standpoint yeah well i was uh, asking you because your standpoint i i was curious you since you've done a book you know kind of going over different aliens would you say that would be the story there or is that like a dune thing <laughs> Well, I, I would just say it's never really discussed or talked about in Dune. It, it's just that these are humans living on another world. Uh, and there's, there's the good guys and then there's the bad guys. And it's this whole thing that gets set up between them. And then there's this uh, messiah, which mm -hmm. becomes... Uh, which is Paul Atreides, who becomes Paul Maudid. So, uh, and then whose voice can actually create destruction if he wanted to through the weirding module, but then his voice becomes the weirding module itself. So, so that's then that last segment, which I loved when after he kills Sting and Sting. I, his eyes gloss over and he goes ah, ah, like that with his voice and then the whole floor 
decades <laughs> like that. So, I mean, really, I mean, I, I Luke, there's got to be something I could say to you right now that would totally destroy, you know, like relationships. <laughs> I mean, if I really you wanted come out to, with these things on the reg, so <laughs> I wouldn't believe it from you. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm too unbelievable for that. Okay, I'm just, uh, you know, the voice is powerful. I mean, in here, it's obviously you know could be a killing machine, but uh, we sometimes forget how powerful the well, words can be. Right, right. I was reminded of your story of where you were in the restaurant saying. Uh, what, what's the worst thing we could say right now to our waitress? Oh, I guess I shouldn't say that now because we seem to be on the, uh, the less friendly <laughs> podcast today. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, that's, there's weaponized words, most certainly. Um, the second right. part, getting a little deeper and less silly, is um, the idea that I, I believe the whole idea with Frank Herbert's future is there's no, except for mental computing, there is no like yeah, digital technology. I think it's implied that there was some sort of Terminator event before the events of Dune. Yeah, one of the books they like sworn off that, but... computers. <laughs> but I mean, well, the the men, the mentats, the mentats yeah. were the mental computers. Yeah, the mentats. But right. No, so, as we would understand them, mechanical computers. Right. Right. Exactly. They were more their biological computers, like we're biological computers, yeah. literally. And but 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 they were the advanced biological computers, the Mentats. And I think um, I think this might have been Brian Herbert's introduction to one of the more recent versions of the book where I read it. But the idea was by getting that out of the way, because you know you see so many movies now or in the past where it's like, well, if they had a cell phone, no problems. Mm. So the idea was by getting rid of all that stuff and doing you focus on these relationships and uh, yeah, you know, these structures of power with actual people and stuff. So it gets to feel like much more of an epic human drama, and like even the stuff with the shields, it's just because. It's more exciting to have fights with knives than have them shoot each other with laser beams. And that's still so right, quick, right. Yeah, yeah, here's a quick reason so that you can get these cooler fight scenes instead of all that nonsense. <laughs> so I, I mean, I kind of like that approach of just like, well, I want to write a cool story with this stuff. So here's my sci-fi excuse. Okay, let's get on with the interesting part. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's character driven. That's what people Very love. And 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 if you notice, like a lot of the TV shows now on. Um, Hulu and Netflix and all of that, it's very character driven. They're not going into these big giant sets and things anymore unless it's a big production with a, a big producer director like a Ryan Murphy or somebody involved. Um, they're really just going in for uh, the character drive, which I think is great. The miniseries, the TV show, it was, it was popular enough, but if it had come 10 years later after Game of Thrones, they could have been huge. Could have been absolutely huge. And who's to say that after this, they might continue on something like HBO Max mm. or, or something of that nature. So uh, because it's all everything's still sketchy with things going in the theaters with mm. COVID and everything. And that's why they pushed it back, because, you know, that's a very expensive movie that they just made there. I mean, I, I, I have no idea what that budget was, but I heard Dune was 80, but then I heard 60. So maybe it was somewhere in in that range, but I'm not really quite sure. But this is back back in because uh, uh, I think we started in like 78, maybe 78, 79, something like that. Oh, so was, I guess that would have been 
was Star Wars a big like? Oh, okay, now Dune. Is it was huge. Feasible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah Star, Star Trek as well. Right. Star Wars came out, and then they said, "Oh, maybe we can make Star Trek." <laughs> Right, Imagine right, because yeah, yeah, because they hadn't started the um, Star Trek movies yet, but Star Wars already came out in '77 and was a huge, of course, as we know, a huge smash. And you know, it's interesting to go through all the things that happened on that movie that where everyone thought it was going to be a big giant bomb. So, I mean, one never knows. But now. The cool thing is, is like a lot of movies that didn't do so well in the theaters, they become cult classics. Everybody now loves Dune, right? And, and oh, and by the way, the, the difference in the versions that are out there, <laughs> David Lynch's version, which was the two hour, what, 16 minute version? Yeah. yeah. Um, they had called David after a certain point Universal and asked him, if he would love to do a director's cut because they wanted to do a re-release. And he said, absolutely. And he said, I'm just finishing up a movie. Will you wait for me? And they said, no. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. Right? And so he said, then take my name off the film. So at the Directors Guild, when a director wants their name off the film, it says directed by Alan Smithy. That's the one you right. watched, right? And Alan Smithy. No, I was yeah because yeah, I um I know there's a film a few years back that was actually just called directed by Alan Smithy, but <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Um, and I did notice. I mean, the couple things I actually didn't like were the additions. Um, you know, uh, '80s sci-fi seemed to have a weird run of horrible narration. A uh, Blade Runner getting it, Brazil getting it, and this one getting it in the three-hour cut. So um, right, where. I, you know, reading the book, I was like, how are they going to do this? So I guess in that one, they uh, did the narration. I'm actually going to have to go watch the shorter, proper one. You just, again, you assume, oh, I should watch the longer one. <laughs> right, right. And and the, the thing is, is is whatever you watch, if, if you get the DVDs or I'm not sure if they're online, it's fun to watch all the behind the scenes, especially when they did the re-release uh, of Dune on, uh, I think it was Blu-ray, where they actually interviewed Rafaela, Bob Ringwood. I don't know if David did an actual interview. It may have been from back there because it's been a sore point with him, Dune. So he doesn't he doesn't talk about it, nor does he like to talk about it. Um, it so concept art intro, which is kind of off-putting as well, because after the concept art, uh, um, you know, it goes to this like amazing set in that cut and you're like whoa <laughs> i i just you know i have to say i loved it and and i so much more appreciate it now i loved it back then i i when i tried to read the book i couldn't understand it in my <laughs> young brain i mean i'm so <laughs> you were nine years old and you read it and you got it i was like i had to make you it know, one <laughs> yeah and and but now I just have this great appreciation for it because I get it and I, and I totally understand it. And, uh, and I've read the book and just go, God, it was just so written so beautifully. And I do hope that there will be a day that David will be able to look at it objectively without all of the critics in his head and, and say, wow, this really was this, this, this was a great experience because I, I really like it. I mean, so many people I know love the movie. 
it's just it's different it's 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 classic lynch yeah i mean looking at this one um like you could watch like a new marvel movie where everything's done impeccably but i just uh you know this one shoots way higher than that movie <laughs> it's you know right going for right us, when, when you try and do pull off a stunt you know a couple flaws are acceptable <laughs> right uh, right shooting for the stars uh i guess pun intended there but <laughs> yeah and i i think what a lot of people don't understand is when you're when you are not a filmmaker you don't know the blood sweat and tears a filmmaker puts into their movies i mean i've made my own films i've written uh six books i'm writing my seventh book now it takes a very long time to craft these things to really get them into um, uh, an order and, and then for somebody to just come along and give it a bad review because they don't like it. Like for me, if I see something and I don't like it, I'm not going to go online and say, Hey, look at me, look at my big ego. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot your movie down right? Because I know the hard work those filmmakers put into it. And, um, and so many people just go and do these bad reviews and things like that online. I mean, I I've, I've heard so many people talking, um, like at the TV Academy, producers and things on their shows, and, and they go right to the thing. It's like, yeah, there, there was like these, this group of people who just hate our show. And, and this and that. And that's what filmmakers remember are these bad, bad reviews or really, really good ones as well. I mean, I got a fan letter. My, and I literally have it framed on my wall right in front of me <laughs> from a seven-year-old boy who wrote me a letter about the Extraterrestrial Species Almanac, the book that uh, I just released that came out on January 1st. And it's all in his writing. He said, I think your extraterrestrial species almanac is great. And you're a producer. Please make this into a documentary. I would love to see that. <laughs> right? And he drew some pictures and things like that. So uh, anyway, so I wrote him a letter back and I said, yes, we are actually making a documentary right now. We're bringing the extraterrestrials to life. So, you know, so those, those are like wonderful moments, but again, it's, it's so, it's hard for filmmakers when like critics jump on a bandwagon and, and shoot their picture down when they really didn't have to, because I, I think Dune was good. And listen, they had with what they had to work with and visual effects and with certain things. And, and you have to take those things into consideration. Yeah. It's the, it's the creativity, the mind power that goes into that. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. One, one of our regular guests, cause he's a friend of mine, but um, you know, he used to write movie reviews, most caught, uh, caught reviews around the year 2000 and people have, often say to him why do you only write good reviews he's like well i don't want to waste time on a bad movie <laughs> right right there you go there you go that's right
So what else you guys want to know about Dune? Anything? I mean, I've got lots more thoughts I want to share on Dune, but when we've got a guest on who worked on the film, no one wants to hear me walk along with my opinion. <laughs> we'll do another podcast when the new film comes out, we'll I think. So oh, God, yeah. I wanted to touch on the philosophy a little bit today, but yeah, that's going to be the time for the deeper dive on all that. Although, Matt, you asked me about the most disturbing image, and I said it was the navigator. That's not true. The, the most navigator, image, yes. The most disturbing image was that bald man mullet that Patrick Stewart had. <laughs> oh, when he comes back and he's got the mullet. <laughs> he's got the mullet in the back. That's going to haunt my nightmares for a while, I think. <laughs> Sorry, my answer, by the way, was the um, Ollie in the womb after the waters of life. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. My answer yeah. on that one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the one, okay, this isn't so much a production question, but the one that I was going, trying to go down my philosophical rabbit hole, and there, there is one that I just want to throw out because um, it's uh, it, seeing past, present, and future all at once is one of the trippiest ideas out there. <laughs> um, that's when David Lynch brings on his full, like, sort of avant garde film thing because you can't show that. <laughs> it's impossible. So, you know, a cool, like, trippy montage did it pretty well. So. But uh, what would you do, Luke, if you could see in the uh, future, past, and present all at once? Um, Paul keeps trying to avoid his fate and ends up in it anyway. Well, I know the yeah the sequels get <laughs> right, right. Stuff, as I remember, um, to the point that doesn't he like blind himself because he's get, he feels like he has no free will when he can see the future. Uh, I was about to give a dirty answer actually, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. It, you can't imagine what you'd do because our brains are so built to exist as just linear, three-dimensional creatures, right? That it is, it is. Well, really, in, in a sense, Paul becomes fo a fully conscious being where he is able to see everything. But then these futures are possible futures mm -hmm. and there, there could be one that is the most probable but still could the path could be altered by changing one or two things. And uh, can Paul change that? Can he do that? I don't know. I didn't read the sequels to the books, but, uh, but I'm sure that, uh, that he explored those kind of ideas. Yeah. Cause as I recall, the problem in the sequels that he counters is that he begins to feel that he is the one person who doesn't have any free will. Because right. he just sees this future and acts it out. Right. So I think, yes. you know, what makes life interesting is that I don't know what's going to happen next. So right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you know what the end game is, then your your daily life is not going uh, not going to be fulfilling with you keep trying yeah, to go looking, towards a goal. Yeah. You know, it's the journey along the way is what what well, matters. Right. I think that would be lost if you knew exactly what yes. you're going to end up. At yeah, the same time, I, I feel like we all have like, we have a glimmer of the future, which you could call intuition, I suppose. So it's kind of right. fun not to know the future and know when to hear that voice. I mean, right. I think, well, come on, we're in such an interesting situation. You've heard it. <laughs> 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 I think everyone involved. But yeah, when I force decisions, I, you know, it usually doesn't go well. So um, yes, and, and that's, that's right. Because Paul is like, He's getting way more intuition. So 
it's like there's several paths and now he kind of has to choose one and force his way down that path he can't really just sit still which maybe is what oh yeah that's nuttier in a fruitcake the sleeper has to awake right yeah, you yeah. sleepwalk yeah until the time comes where no now i've made a decision i'm gonna i'm gonna go for it i think we can right without and, and i'm not trying to sit, go like more culture but say awake without you know necessarily Maybe being like groggy is best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly that. And of course, that saying has stuck with me my whole life. The sleeper must awaken because it, it's basically being, are you either, you're either asleep or you're awake in your consciousness or you're in the middle going, rising out of, this duality down here and going towards becoming fully conscious in the in the real world of fully conscious beings you still have the free will you still you still have all of your emotions you have all of that but now that what drives you instead of the ego is the heart right so in in that sense that they actually work out and work through their problems in uh, in in a in a well um, thought out manner, where us us in duality, if if our anger gets all busted up, we we you know we tend to uh, raise our voices, go into direct anger, and all those kind of things. So, what's really great is that all of these tools are are great. Um, all of the emotions are great tools that help us rise up and out of duality and, and moving towards uh, becoming better humans as we become more fully conscious and aware and awaken. Sleeper must awaken. You, you recognize <laughs> the tool and you want to pick, you still kind of want to pick up the tool, but you know, you shouldn't pick up the, the emotional tool. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And therein is how you evolve. Am I going, what choice am I going to make? Am I going to make the karmic choice or the dharmic choice, right? Because I know if I, if I, if I know better, but I'm so angry, I want to act out instead of giving myself some days to cool off and, and maybe meditate, do something to see how I should really handle the situation because you don't have to handle it that moment. Or, and, and, then, and, and then if you do act it out, then you, go, then you go back on the karmic wheel and you're constantly spinning and spinning and spinning and and that type of thing. Or if you go the other way, you go into the dharmic and then you rise up and your consciousness starts to rise. And that's when people start having spiritual awakenings. Luke, so, when's the last time you really got pissed at somebody? Well, it hasn't happened this year because that's why I quit Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been back when I was still on social media and I just see someone chatting, someone I've never met and I'm never going to meet and it doesn't matter, but they're saying something wrong and I can't let it go. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's true. I, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, look at, look at what it did to the whole world, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. For years and years and years. So... Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I only, po I only post positive posts. I don't get in, in, 
involved in all that drama or anything of that nature. I see all my friends doing it and all they're doing is fighting and fighting and fighting. And then they tell me how mad they are and what this, uh, what this person message message to them and, you know, just really bad, horrible things. And, and I'm like, but why do you fight? Why fight? You're not, nobody, uh, nobody wants to say that they're going to give in. So what's the point in it? Uh, so I'm very proud of you, Luke, for getting <laughs> off of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he gave me the keys to the Luke and Matt sci-fi Twitter account, which I only use to post our stuff on. So I, I haven't run into toxic Twitter, fortunately, and I can basically just watch toxic Facebook without really getting involved. So I make sure never to post anything political on Facebook. <laughs> right, right. That's right. That's right. My, my father does. Um, a few years ago, I, I, I mean, we've never had a bad relationship at all, but I, I was like, you know, you sound like a bit of an a-hole there. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> fortunately now, his posts have gotten so weird and oblique and mentioned news commentators, and I have no idea what he's talking about now, so it's nicer. You probably knew yeah. what you saw. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Oh, yeah. Matt's dad had to be on Facebook. I saw like one post, and I was like, I was going to quietly mute you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I know. I love that they give you all those options. You can mute them. You can you can unfollow them, but stay friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't have to see their posts, and they don't know that. Yeah. You know, little things of Perhaps that. Perhaps dad can sure. still send me a nice message if I post a picture of a tree, but I don't have to read what he thinks about Joe Biden. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I, did have, I had a very off-color joke that I almost made earlier. You were talking about the British premier and how you were sat behind Prince Andrew. And yes. I really wanted to say, oh, well, he wouldn't have minded if you had a romance with 15-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> well... This, this he this was well before oh, all, all of his publicized stuff but he was back then i do remember when i was in london um seeing on the tabloids randy andy so oh, I remember that. <laughs> um, yeah yeah um i i didn't get a chance to meet him i saw him of course because he was sitting right in front of me but uh but Bob Ringwood met him along with the Queen when they they had that little sort of, uh, you know, when they do the little meet and greet that type of thing. So, uh, but yeah, it's amazing. It feels a little bit anti-monarchy. So I wonder what the Queen thought. <laughs> I she probably didn't never even watched it. Probably not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I don't I'm think sure. the Queen sit down and watches. Two hour movies. sci-fi movies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, I wonder what she would watch. Would she watch the BBC or would she watch, you know, I mean, I love watching uh, British television. Yeah, so uh, there's a few presidents, American presidents, where they had like often screen like, so, like I wish, wish I could think of a specific example but just like totally off the wall choices of what the president is screening in the White House <laughs> regularly <laughs> right right you never right. know what people are really going to do again I was going to say when we were talking about Prince Andrew and I, I can't make any judgment I've never met him right uh, you know someone that seems like a horrible monster in the media you might meet him and find out you've met your new best friend and you know you're going to hate your hero in the meantime right mm -hmm. so you really don't know <laughs> I I will totally be honest with you I I I've worked with so many movie stars over the years and 
uh, became extremely close to a lot of them. And some of them I had a preconceived notion about that I would not like them. And, um, and I just absolutely fell in love with them. I thought they were like the most fantastic people. And then others who I thought I would really like, I would never want to work with or meet again. Um, and that's the beauty about being in this business because you just say you're unavailable if you don't want to work with them again. <laughs> right. So, um, and, uh, but I will tell you the bigger the star, the nicer the heart. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I guess at that point, you're not necessarily clawing up a ladder. So that probably helps. <laughs> yeah. <nice> yeah. Satisfaction. <laughs> It was just, and so many of them are so nice. And even on the TV show I worked on where Burt Reynolds directed an episode, I mean, he uh, was on Amazing Stories uh, in the 80s. Uh, I went on that right after uh, Dune and Conan. And he bought us all um, jackets with the Amazing Story logo on the back for the entire cast and crew. I mean, that was super nice of him. I'd want that. <laughs> when yeah, was the last yeah. time you felt starstruck? I, uh, it only happened a couple of times. Um, once when, when we were uh, on Amazing Stories, the executive producer uh, uh, or main producer, he came in and he goes, Burt Reynolds is coming next week. Get ready, Burt Reynolds. And I'm like, oh yeah, I really, I've always enjoyed Burt Reynolds. He's directing and blah, blah, blah. And when he came in the office, I had never knew what charisma was. He had it all wrapped around him. It was, and I really did get starstruck and he was the kindest man. I actually have his a photograph up here yeah. that he signed for me. He just brought it in one day and said, here, I want to give this to you. And I thought that that was so nice because he was a giant star at the time. And, um, and he even brought me one of Lonnie because they were together and Lonnie was starring in the episode along with Dom DeLuise. It's the first time I worked with Dom and worked with him many, many times. Um, he was one, Brooke Shields, was another because of her charisma around her. And the third was a fluke. I was, one Christmas, I was at um, Shirley MacLaine's house. Uh, I was uh, good friends with her daughter. And, um, and, you know, Shirley's just, she's just a sweet lady. I mean, it's like, uh, she just treats everybody like a best friend. Right. So, so all of a sudden I heard the front door open. I heard voices and then Shirley said, Oh, Craig, I was sitting on the floor with my back to where the door was. And she said, Oh, I want you to meet my brother Warren. And I turned around and looked up. Never in my life had I seen so much charisma. I went, no wonder all those women literally clamored over him it's not that he's just good looking it's the energy that accompany accompanies it right so he had that really really special charisma so those three 
always have stuck out in my mind. And if I meet a young actor and I feel that charisma about them, I will, and they do a really good job, I will push to make them go forward on whatever movie I'm doing because I know that they're going to hit. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so it's really amazing. So it's never the reputation for you. It's the actual, the person in the room. The person in the room. Right. Right. Cause I, I don't know what to expect when I, when I first meet them. Right. Um, I, I had a friend uh, when, before my first book came out in 2011, I had a, I gave it to a friend to read um, and she was working for Steven Seagal and she had left it on her, she worked out of his home um, and she had left it on his, uh, on her desk uh, and forgot to bring it home. So he picked it up and read it and then said to her, who is this? I know I, I really feel a soul connection to this person. I want to meet him. And so I started talking to him on the phone. I ended up casting, uh, becoming one of the casting directors on a movie with him. And, um, and uh, we talked on the phone and he really is a deeply spiritual guy. And, um, and especially uh, through uh, the dojo and all of the discipline and everything that he does there. And uh, so eventually we talked for months and months and then he was shooting uh, the train movie, uh, the second one. Um, oh yeah, um, Under Siege 2. Yeah, so I went to Warner Brothers and um, they had a car pick me up and drive me directly to the set. He was sitting in a chair outside of the soundstage waiting for me. So when his limo pulled up, he actually ran over. He's six foot five. He ran over, picked me up and gave me the biggest hug. And I noticed like everyone was like looking like, who is that guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so anyway, um, uh, but it, it was, um, you know, so it, it, you get to work with these people and, um, uh, and I think a lot of things that people don't realize is a lot of stars, um, they can't really create new friends. Mm unless it's somebody in the business that is not going to fawn over them or do things or something that you have a thing like uh, my book was extremely spiritual and he connected into that spiritual and we had lots of uh, really great conversations. And then he would just have all the coolest people over to his house all the time. So it was fun to have all these great deep conversations with uh, lots of famous writers and uh, other actors and uh, different things of that sort. Amazing. Yeah, I used to, uh, I went for a big Steven Seagal phase in my teens. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so I loved him for like his, his ridiculous action movies. I'd love to, I haven't really seen any of his more recent like interviews and stuff because I know he's become very spiritual. Yes. In his life, so. yeah, yes. Yes. Definitely. In Steven Tagal trajectory. No, I just know. Yes. To start making music, I was like, oh, I, I like music, so I'm like, oh, that's a big actor. I'd probably just change gears and go make a few albums. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, he does. He play. He plays guitar. 
and uh, that type of stuff. So, but I mean, he's still making movies and uh, I haven't talked to him in quite a long time, but uh, I see that he's still making movies. He does a lot of uh, foreign movies now, Russia, you know, for Russia and uh, other countries. Um, because, you know, over there, those guys are stars. I mean, I, I do um, uh, the Russian Arnold Schwarzenegger. His name is Alexander Nevsky. I've cast like five films for him. And it's interesting who are stars over there as opposed to stars over here. So he'll say, oh, this person is extremely famous in Russia. Can we get them? And I'm like, oh, yeah, we can get them. So. <laughs> Yeah, know that kind of thing so thing it's, is, it's, yeah, of course in japan you know the biggest comedian in america is the complete unknown here so <laughs> right right um, yeah it doesn't translate so well yeah absolutely absolutely so um, we don't want to suck up all your time today and we actually have to go to work before too long can you tell us a little <laughs> bit uh, about your books and uh well you got a movie poster behind you we haven't mentioned yet and I'll, i i'd still like to talk uh with you about later, but <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so uh, my book series is called the autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga. It's a four part book series and um, it sort of, it, it takes place out in the universe with fully conscious beings, how that universe is set up and how they take world by world and bring it into coming out of a dualistic world and raising it up into a fully conscious society so it can rejoin with universal society. So those books uh, are about that, which is, the main focus is earth and raising consciousness here so that earth will then therefore join with uh, the universal society. So the website, uh, people want to get the books there, is autobiography of autobiographyofanet.com. Uh, all four books are on the front page. Uh, there's also a button if you want to get all four books in hardcover or softcover with the click of one button, or you can buy them individually. I uh, personalize and sign them for everyone. And then the... Uh, Extraterrestrial Species Almanac. Uh, you can also get on the same website, autobiography of anet.com. And then in the upper, in the bar at the top, it says other books. You just click on that and you can order it there. It's uh, also available on Amazon and all formats. And, uh, and then the movie posters behind me are uh, the short film that I did to the uh, book, uh, Stranger at the Pentagon, uh, that website, strangeratthepentagon.com. Uh, people can watch a short film there, or if you have Amazon Prime in the UK and, or America only, you can watch it there as well. And, uh, and then, uh, there's uh, all of the books that Dr. Frank Stranges, who was friends with this being from somewhere else, who was a created being who lived at the Pentagon for three years under the Eisenhower-Nixon administration, who is the stranger at the Pentagon. Um, all of his books are also on the website uh, as well there. So, because uh, they're all out of print and Dr. Frank passed away back in 2008 and we're, 
gearing up to make the big sci-fi feature of that now. We like big sci-fi features. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, my, uh, my, a lot of my childhood was spent reading, you know, books of uh, extraterrestrials or close encounters. Yes. My, oh, yeah. Really terrifying myself, but being unable to stop reading. So oh, I know. Night, it was I the know. Same thing. Like my parents, were like, yeah. look, if you're gonna, if it, you can't sleep, then don't read the books. Like, but I want to read the books. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Matt, I haven't read your book just yet. Matt's actually in the middle of reading it. He couldn't ask God. me. Ask me the purple one. Are these guys in it? <laughs> no. Oh, uh, wait. No, those are the Hopkinsville. Uh, th those are the Hopkinsvilles. No, those are in my new book. Okay. That I'm writing now. It'll be out next year. It's also for MUFON books. Because um, um, in the in the West, like if you think the typical alien, people tend to picture the gray. But here in Japan, right. it's actually the Hopkinsville Goblin is the much more common. That's yes. how people picture a close encounters alien. Um, so if you ever see an alien in an anime or Japanese movie, it tends to be more in that direction. More in that direction, yes, because though that was where the very first Little Green Men was coined. Yeah. Yeah, way, way uh, back. Uh, I think it was 65 when that happened. I think, yeah, around that time. Yeah, yeah. And in that town, they, they started in 1999, the uh, Hopkinsville Parade and all kinds of stuff. They do all things extraterrestrial and... Uh, they have it in that town uh, once a year, I think for three or four days where this whole big uh, thing goes on uh, uh, with booths and all kinds of, all things alien and people dress up as aliens and all kinds oh, of stuff. I gotta so, go there. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Well, this was fun, guys. Thank you for having me on. No, thank oh, you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I honestly, I, I knew you'd worked on the film and I thought we might just be getting, uh, I was, you know, like, putting a set together and I saw a few things happen, but uh, you had a whole lot of <laughs> interesting uh, direct tales of this one. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I was there from the very beginning all the way to the very end. So it was a long, a long haul and it was great and it flew by. And I mean, it was, uh, I mean, they were really informative years for me. So, I mean, especially looking back now, cause you know, back then I, I didn't know who anybody was. I was so young and naive. So now I kind of look back and, you know, cause I just go, Oh, that's David. Mm. Oh, that's Raffaella. You know, where everyone's like, Oh my God, that's David. <laughs> <laughs> I give that reaction. Yeah. Like, I, I think I told you he's in my top five directors. So <laughs> yeah, mine too. Mine too. Yeah. He's amazing. But, uh, so, actually, in this case, I'll talk to you soon then. So, uh, yes, <laughs> your time yes. <laughs> you're welcome. Sorry, I'll just give the five minute plug. Um, not just five minute plug, excuse me, five second plug. Um, this is probably airing second, but um, you're also going to be talking on my other uh, oral hygiene podcast where you do experimental call it short films. And uh, we'll be talking about your short stranger at the Pentagon, and hopefully, we'll be doing the longer run someday too so <laughs> yes absolutely and i'll i'll uh share with everybody the longer version of the story that a lot of people don't know okay well thanks yeah. all for coming on today all right well i'll do our you're welcome then. oh you want to go ahead okay do yeah. 17 seconds okay if you can find our podcast on twitter at mlsfs pod we're also on facebook youtube apple podcast just search matt and luke sci-fi sanctuary if you like the music you heard in this podcast you can find more of matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com I do other podcasts. I do a Monster Hunter podcast called Monster Mash, which you can find at Monster Mash Pod. 
If there's ever a monster that goes understand, you can bet I bring up Dune. And I do a Pokemon podcast, which you can find at Luke Loves PKMN. And coming up very soon, I will actually be talking about this Pokemon, which is based on the Hopkinsville Goblin. So <laughs> I expect to hear a lot of that coming up very soon. That's why I wanted to do the plug. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> well, uh, Craig and uh, dear listeners, you can go forward, backwards, and presently out of our sanctuary. Please leave our sanctuary without moving by folding space. Mm. That's right. The spice must flow. I do have to let you do these outros. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye. Europa Report.